Good evening, everyone. Isn't it a better evening than that? Good evening, everyone. No. All right, everyone's awake. That's good to know. I'm Paul Levengood. Welcome uh, to um, the Virginia Historical Society on this, I guess it was spring. Of course, when I left the house this morning, it felt a little more like winter, but on this spring night. Before I introduce today, tonight's lecture, I would like to make a few announcements about some upcoming events here at the VHS that I'm sure you won't want to miss. Uh, make sure you set aside some time coming up a week from Saturday. Many of you know what that date is. That is Garden Party here at the VHS, April 26th, Saturday afternoon at Virginia House. Please consider joining us if you've never been. It is a great event. It's one of those sort of Richmond ritual traditions that uh, you really don't want to miss. Great food, beautiful gardens, mint juleps, and impressive hats. And often I find mint juleps and impressive hats go hand in hand, you know. What more can you ask for? So please join us on the 26th, a week from Saturday. And uh, last little piece of, of schedule information, uh, our fourth annual Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture will take place here at 5.30 p.m. on June 5th. And that evening, historian Elizabeth Varon from University of Virginia will be here to speak on the topic Lee at Appomattox. I'm sure you won't want to miss that. Now, I heard someone switching their cell phone off. Apparently, we've trained you well around here. But if you do have one of these little electronic monsters in your pocket, please switch it off now so that we don't interrupt our speaker. Now, tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian, Jr., affectionately known to his many, many friends as Punky. Twice wounded in Normandy, Punky returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. His service to the Virginia Historical Society spanned some of the most critical years in our history. He co-chaired our first capital campaign, not our last, but our first capital campaign, the Fifth Century Fund, which redefined the VHS as the Center for Virginia History and served as a catalyst for two decades plus growth uh, and achievement. As a trustee, a board president, an honorary vice chairman, he gave leadership, energy, generosity, and his own special cantankerous brand of persistence. All of these qualities left an indelible mark on the VHS. Tonight, again, we celebrate Punky with this lecture named in his honor, and I'm delighted, as we do every year, to welcome members of the Christian family. His wonderful wife Peggy is here, along with three of their children, Susan, Wheezy, and Stuart. And not to embarrass Stuart, but tonight is his birthday. So. And I want to thank uh, your family the Christian family, for sharing Punky with his extended family here at the Society. And though he left us a few years ago after a, a long life full of accomplishment, we will always remember him with the greatest affection for what he meant to this institution and so many Virginians. So thank you. Thank you for sharing him with us. We've chosen, uh, quite deliberately, World War II-era topics for the Christian lecture in honor of Punky's service in that conflict. Tonight, as I've done the last few years, I would like to take a moment and honor the service of others as well. And I would ask if there's anyone 
who is a World War II veteran in the audience, or World War II era, please stand and be recognized for your service to our nation. That's always wonderful to see. And if you know of someone who's not here and is a World War II vet, go up and say thank you to them. Uh, don't wait to do it. Don't wait to do it. Do it today. In November 1942, a U.S. cargo plane on a routine flight smashed into the Greenland ice cap. Four days later, the B-17 assigned to the search and rescue mission became lost in a blinding storm and also crashed. Miraculously, all nine men on the B-17 survived. With the weather worsening, the U.S. military launched a daring rescue mission, sending a Grumman Duck amphibious plane to find them. After picking up one member of the B-17 crew, the Duck flew into a severe storm, and the plane and the three men aboard vanished. In this thrilling true-life adventure, Tonight's speaker offers a spellbinding account of these harrowing crashes and the fate of the survivors and would-be saviors. He also recounts the efforts of a modern-day adventurer, Lou Sapienza, who worked for years with the Coast Guard and Commander Jim Blow to solve the mystery of the duck's last flight and recover the remains of its crew. Mitchell Zukoff teaches journalism at Boston University. He's the author of not only of this book, about which he'll be speaking tonight, but also of Lost in Shangri-La, a true story of survival, adventure, and the most incredible rescue mission of World War II, about which he spoke at the 2012 Christian Lecture, and also of Choosing Naya, a family's journey. His magazine work has appeared in The New Yorker, Fortune, and other national and regional publications. He's a former special projects reporter for the Boston Globe, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting. He's received a host of awards, including the Associated Press Managing Editor's Public Service Award and the Distinguished Writing Award from the American Society of Newspaper Editors. So please join me in a very warm Richmond and VHS return welcome to Mitch Zukoff, who will speak to us on the topic, Frozen in Time. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be back here for the Stuart Christian lecture, uh, although uh, Paul and Nelson said they would keep inviting me back till I got it right. And so I, I, I didn't know what they meant. Uh, I am talking about uh, a place that very few people know anything about uh, tonight, uh, Greenland. And this is the setting for our, our, our tale. This is a place called Koji Bay on the southeastern coast of Greenland. This is what it looks like today, and this is what it almost certainly looked like in 1942. This is a place that is truly frozen in time. And as Paul mentioned, I'm going to be telling you a little bit about two stories. One, and the primary story I tell in the book, is a story uh, from history, from World War II, but it's also a story about a modern quest uh, by a remarkable group of people who I was honored to be a part of or to be uh, accepted into their ranks uh, to find these lost heroes of World War II. The story really begins with something called Operation Bolero, 
this was an attempt by the Americans to, by, by America, to get hundreds of warplanes from here, from where they were rolling off factory lines, over to where the war was taking place, to, to over to get into the fight. They would fly uh, frequently to St. John, Canada, and then up to Greenland, over, then to Reykjavik, Iceland, and then to Britain. And this was a way of, of both speeding the, the trip and avoiding U-boats uh, if they had put them onto ships. The problem was Greenland. Almost as soon as we started flying over Greenland during World War II, we started flying into Greenland. Those of you who, I don't know if any of you have been there, but it's, it's a remarkable place. It's the world's largest island. Uh, it is three times the size of France. It is covered almost completely, more than 85% with ice. Uh, it, of course, should have been called Iceland, but that was taken. <laughs> the weather is horrible. This is a place of pitterack storms, 100-mile-an-hour winds. Uh, it's the, there's the one magic place on the thermometer where Fahrenheit and Celsius agree, 40 degrees below zero. That's Greenland. In World War II, it had three areas of significance. One was at the very southeastern tip, it was the scene of the site of the largest uh, cryolite factories of uh, mine, pardon me, in the world. And cryolite was at the time a necessary ingredient for aluminum. You couldn't have warplanes without aluminum and you couldn't have aluminum without cryolite. So it was strategically important. The second reason was we wanted to have our bases there uh, for, the, um, for the Operation Bolero, and we also wanted to know the weather. There was a, a saying at the time where whoever knew the weather in Greenland knew the weather the next day in Europe. And so it was very important for the Allies to control Greenland, so we built bases there. But as I mentioned, the problem was when we started flying, we started crashing. So early in November of 1942, uh, a C-53 sky trooper, uh, this sort of pudgy little Buick of the sky, uh, crashed on its way back from Iceland. Five men were aboard. The captain was Homer McDowell. And incredibly, they all survived the crash. They were able to get radio calls out to seeking help. And so immediately, a number of the planes that were en route to the war were dispatched and turned from warplanes into search planes. And one was a B-17 bomber known as the PN-9E. And it didn't have one of the sort of sexy names yet. It didn't have one of those, you know, uh, bedtime for Hitler or, you know, some you know, big barn smell or some of the fun names that we've come to know. Um, B-17s ended up getting, because it was still in transport. It, it had just a, a ferry crew on board. And they were routine bunch of guys, uh, navigator Bill O'Hara, uh, pilot, pilots Armin Monteverdi and, and uh, Harry Spencer, engineer, uh, Armin, uh, excuse me, uh, Al Tucciaroni, radio man, Lauren Howarth, and en assistant engineer Paul Spina. And they were just supposed to bring the plane over to England. This was their first overseas trip. But now they suddenly became searchers for this lost C-53. Also on board were three passengers. There was uh, the first was a guy who was just on his way um, to, uh, to the war to join his troops, basically. Um, uh, forgive me. 
um, a Clarence Weedle, and then Woody Perrier, uh was just who's a, a guy working on the uh, the island of Greenland as a as a codebreaker, and his friend Clint Best. So these nine guys went out searching for this lost plane. In that first slide where I showed you Koji Bay, as they flew up Koji Bay, they flew into milk. And that was a condition that pilots over Greenland became very familiar with. The ice cap would blend with the sky, same color. They didn't know if they were up or down. Storms would come in out of nowhere, suddenly filling the sky with snow and sleet. And so Armin Monteverdi and uh, Harry Spencer decided, let's turn because we don't know how high we are over the glacier. As soon as they turned, as soon as they dropped the left wing to make that turn, it slashed into the glacier. The Flying Fortress became almost like a giant bobsled, sliding and bouncing across the top of the ice cap. It broke in half. The guys were thrown around the fuselage. Uh, a couple of them were thrown out of the fuselage when the plane broke actually in half as it crossed these, this crevasse field, this field with these deep gashes in the ice. It came to rest. The radio was broken, but miraculously, all nine men were still alive. Didn't have a radio, though. They had no, uh, no rations. They had no survival gear. Uh, they had no way to tell anyone that they were alive and uh, they needed rescue. The search began for them. This is where they were. This was the world that they had suddenly landed in. And this was just a group of guys who were supposed to drop off a plane in England and go home. And uh, this is actually a picture from 1943 of this area. And almost immediately they realized they would not have to worry too much because they figured within two weeks we're either going to be rescued or dead. No one can live more than two weeks on the ice cap. Incredibly, they were spotted from the air. But nobody could figure out how to get to them. You can't just land a plane that didn't have helicopters that you could use to get in and out. And so it turned out, because we were flying planes into the ice cap so frequently, there was a little rescue station. And these two guys manned this rescue station. And one on the left is Don Tetley, uh, a Texan, a rancher, who suddenly got converted into ice duty. And on the right, Max Demarest, who was probably the world's greatest authority on glaciers. But as those of you who served in World War II remember, and those of you who lived through it, uh, know that at that time, whatever you were, you now had to give service. And so he got turned into a second lieutenant, and he turned from a glacier expert at Ivy League schools into a, um, a dog sled driving rescuer on the ice cap of Greenland. They sent them to try and reach them. I'll let you see in the book how that went. When that didn't work, they sent <laughs> the US Coast Guard Cutter Northland. At this time, there was something called the Greenland Patrol, and Coast Guard ships were being used to, uh, to guide troop carriers, to look for mines in the water, to look for U-boats. Uh, but their, their main goal, and any of you who served in the Coast Guard may know this, the, the, the heart and soul of the Coast Guard is rescue, is, is saving uh, down flyers, down, sea, uh, down, down sailors. And so 
they pulled up into Koji Bay hoping to be able to get to these guys. The guy that they wanted to use as their main rescuer was the man on the far right, John Pritchard. Here he is just three weeks before this event. He had just rescued three Canadian flyers who had crashed on the ice cap and had lived somehow for two weeks uh, walking toward the, uh, toward the water. And so John Pritchard had just rescued these Canadians and he said, okay, I've got an idea. I know how that I and my uh, trusty radio man, Ben Bottoms, are gonna take our plane and land on the ice cap and pluck these guys back to safety. Well, in 1942, no seaplane had ever landed on a glacier. No, and so of course, none had ever taken off from a glacier either. He planned to do both. November 28th, 1942, they get inside this little Grumman duck, this uh, ungainly, wonderful little plane that hung off the back of the Northland, dropped into the water, and they took off into the unknown. This is from 1943, a sketch, a fanciful sketch of, of what happened at that point. And Incredibly, John Pritchard was able to land in this crevasse field and grab two guys from the PN9E and get them back to safety. Here they are landing on the, the, the plane. Actually, they landed next to the plane, then the plane, then they were winched up and hoisted up, and there is Armin, um, Al, Tucci, Armin Al Tuccioroni being carried down, uh, frostbitten but alive. He and Lloyd Woody Perrier are rescued. The next day, John Pritchard goes out again with Ben Bottoms. They land again. They pick up the radio man, the young radio man, Lolly Howarth, Lauren Lolly Howarth, and they fly into milk. Now we have three missing planes in Greenland in a space of three weeks. And this is what's left to the guys who are left there, nothing, and no hope of getting out of there. There's no other way to get to them. Winter is closing in, and they've got to figure out how to do something no one's ever done, survive on the open, open ice cap over the winter of 1942-1943. A plan starts to emerge as they're figuring out how they're going to do this. And, and the, the book really, the heart and soul of the book, is, is how the PN9E crew survived that winter, what they endured, living in ice caves, living in the broken off tail section of their B-17. Um, as much as it's a story of survival, it's a story of brotherhood, of what they did for each other. Every man in this story, uh, it was remarkable to me that I realized it only after I was researching it. Every man in the story did something selfless. He always, somebody put somebody else in front of him each time the opportunity arose. And those who do make it, that is the, the, the cornerstone and that is the bedrock of why they did. As this is happening, uh, a legendary flyer named Bert Balkin, who uh, had trained Amelia Earhart how to use, um, uh, to fly by, by instruments, uh, was also stationed at the time in, in Greenland. He was a, a legendary Arctic flyer. And he came up with an idea that in the spring, we're gonna land an even bigger seaplane on the glacier, fill it with dogs, fill it with men, and we're gonna walk and, and, and mush our way out of there. I'll let you see how that goes. 
as I said, the, the, the soul of the book in many ways is the story of these nine men uh, from the PN9E, from that B-17, who went out uh, as a ferry crew, turned into rescuers, and then had to figure out how they would become survivors. Over the course of a five-month period on the ice, of these nine men, two of them would fall into deep crevasses. One would emerge. One would lose his life in another plane crash. One would lose both of his feet to the weather. One would, for at least a while, lose his mind. All of them would be changed forever. But that's only one half of the book. As I was researching the book, I, I got in touch with a, uh, a Coast Guard historian who said, it, uh, I was gaining material, material, I thought, wow, this is an incredible story. I'm privileged that it's a forgotten story in history, much like Lost in Shangri-La was. Uh, and he just in passing said, you know, there's an attempt underway. Some guys think that they want to find the duck and bring home the guys, the three heroes, who are still there with it. And I said, really? Who, who, are, <laughs> who is crazy enough to try this? And, and, and how do they think they can do it? And he showed me this. We called it the treasure map. Nobody knew exactly where the duck disappeared, but Bert Balkin, that man who I mentioned previously, on one of his reconnaissance flights to see what was over there, made this hand-drawn map as he was flying over in his notebook. And he marked where the Grumman, where the duck had crashed in relation to where the, the B-17 had crashed, and where Ice Cap Station, where uh, Demarest and Tetley had come from, and where Koji Butte, which was Koji Bay, was. And, and this was interesting, because this might give us an idea where to search in this giant ice field for this missing plane that we knew over the 70 years since it went down uh, would be buried inside a glacier from the accumulation of ice every year, 30, 40, 50 feet perhaps under the ice. As Paul mentioned, at the heart of this effort and who I linked up with was Lou Sapienza, the man on the left. And Lou is a Don Quixote type fella. He tilts at windmills. Uh, he is a dreamer. He is an adventurer. He's a remarkable guy. And it, it just it got it into his head that these men, these heroes aboard the duck, should not be left there. And to his great fortune, and I think all of our great fortune, he linked up uh, somewhat reluctantly at times, because they couldn't be two more different guys, uh, with uh, Jim Blow, Commander Jim Blow of the U.S. Coast Guard, who was uh, a, a top aviation official in the Coast Guard and who saw himself in many ways as the spiritual uh, child of Bottoms and Pritchard. He was a Coast Guard rescue pilot. And no, none of them, uh, Coast Guard rescue pilots all knew the story of Pritchard and Bottoms and their heroism and their loss. And the fact is, they were the only two unaccounted for Coast Guardsmen from World War II. And there was a, um, a dorm two dormitories down in Alabama named for Pritchard and Bottoms. And Jim Blow had spent time in Pritchard Hall. And so he felt a deep connection here. And so this unlikely duo got to work trying to figure out how do we go back to Greenland? How do we find where these guys are and, and try to recover them. Lou, so I reached out to Lou and Lou said, sure, come on in. Great, love to have you. I said, That's odd. 
usually, you know, reporter, you know, a reporter calls you up, and it's something like the proctologist calling for your, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of, you know, maybe you'll tolerate it, but you're not going to, you know, jump at the opportunity. Um, but then I found out while Jim had lined up a, um, a C-130 transport plane to get us over there, Lou had failed almost utterly in his efforts to raise money uh, to do this. And so I understood fairly quickly that he saw my book contract as a, a, a giant, you know, piggy bank. So I actually, I gave him my, I, I became an investor. I, I invested my book advance in the project because I, I truly came to believe. And one reason I came to believe was a woman named Nancy Pritchard who was a, a teenage girl when her, her beloved older brother John disappeared. And she, Nancy, who's still with us and is a delightful woman, uh, was looking at her 90s and, and hoping, she's the last surviving member of their family, that she could bring home her brother, who she has spent her whole life thinking about. She was very close to him. And so I, I said, okay, Lou, here's my book advance. Let's get the equipment that whatever we need to do this, to do our side of, of whatever the Coast Guard can't pay for. So Lou spent that and then <laughs> called me, and this, this is early, this is the summer of 2012, early in uh, the summer, somewhere around July, and I'm looking forward to an August trip. And I said, do you have an American Express card by chance? And so I gave him that, and I gave him a limit, and which he promptly blew past. And you haven't lived until American Express calls your home one night, wondering, uh, the fraud bureau of American Express, uh, wondering if, if Mr. Zukov did in fact mean to buy several shotguns, uh, survival gear, and a polar bear fence. <laughs> My wife took the call. And God bless her, I, I've dedicated books to her appropriately. Um, she just handed, it's for you. <laughs> and so off we went. And we approached, we landed in a place called Kulasuk on the east coast of Greenland, a tiny little fishing village. And from there, we had to take helicopters up and over the ice cap, over the edge of, of Greenland, which is surrounded at the, its edge by mountains and waterfalls and, uh, and calving glaciers, and going up and over to where we thought we might find the duck. Now we had also, and, and Jim Blow had arranged for some overflights with ground penetrating and ice penetrating radar. So we had a sense of where we were going and some possible hits, but we knew we had to get on the ice to figure out what was really there. And so, you know, I, I got my first taste of Greenland from this, it, helicopter pilots, as you may know, are all insane. And this guy was so, so wanted to show us this, um, this, this falls that we kept going until the falls is literally spraying on the front windshield before we would then finally fly up and over. And this is a sense of, of Greenland, uh, this magnificently beautiful but wildly barren uh, island. And, and there you have it. But we did make it, and there were 17 of us. And uh, 11 members of, of Lou's organization, the uh, North-South Polar, five members of the uh, Coast Guard, and me. 
and we set up on the ice in tents surrounded by an outcropping of rock called a nunatak that we thought would protect us from the storms that we knew were coming uh, any day. And we had good weather at first, but we knew the weather never stays good for long in Greenland. And so every day we would go out onto the ice. This is Alberto Behar, the chief scientist of North-South Polar, uh, a remarkable guy uh, who also works for NASA at the J uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And this was just me following uh, Alberto onto the ice to see where we needed to set up our camps and where we needed to set up our areas to search for okay. something that would show us the duck. And Alberto has been down to Antarctica a number of times and I, I had never been on a glacier and this is me trying to decide, and Alberto just told me where not to step and I'm now trying to remember where not to step. I'm going to follow your footsteps. Open crevasses. And the thing about crevasses that, they, that you learn is that they're not so obvious. They, many of them have these uh, ice bridges over them. And so you could be walking along, and this is actually what happened to some of the guys in the PN9E, and the bottom drops out under you. It looks like flat ice. So when you see a crevasse, you're almost happy. Thank you. Strangely enough. So that's to prove I was actually there. And, um, but the real work, the, the hardest work, I, I think, as hard as we all worked, was done by this team. This, we had a geophysicist, um, a Swedish ge geophysicist named Jana Gustafsson. And Jana is the person in the middle, and she's dragging this 30-foot-long, we called it the dragon's tail. It was a radar unit that, walking back and forth over the areas that had been spotted from the air, we thought we could figure out maybe there's something inside the ice. And she was led by our ice team, uh, John Bradley and Frank Marley. And they walked literally dozens of miles uh, back and forth over the ice, avoiding crevasses, trying to paint a picture of what was down beneath the ice. And day after day, no matter how hard we worked, we came up blank. Nothing showed on the radar screen that Jana held it at her waist, showing that there was something in the ice, that the duck was there. And as we got discouraged, we thought about giving up, but of course we wouldn't do that, but we were running out of time. And in the least likely place, a place that we had written off as highly unlikely we would ever find the duck, because it was a, a, a questionable historical marker, latitude and longitude um, uh, coordinate, she came back with this. And this image, for those of you who are not ice experts, um, is actually, it's a double image, so you can look at either the left or the right side. It's really the same thing. But that's the radar going all the way down more than 100 feet to bedrock. And this was remarkable. What it shows is those little parabolas at the top are a, cr a crevasse. That's just it's an a disruption or an interruption in the ice. Crevasses don't start like this 40 feet down. It showed that in this giant ice cube, in this giant solid block of ice, something remarkable, something unusual, something unexpected was 40 feet deep. And of course, this site was the farthest from our camp. We had no equipment up there. And we had to figure out how we're going to get to there to start drilling and melting down to the ice. We called our helicopter units, and they said, we can't possibly help you. There's a huge storm, there's a Pitarac storm coming in, and we are removing scientific teams from the ice all around Greenland. This is Air Greenland. Uh, so you're on your own, guys. 
we had an amazing team member named Ouija Smith, and Ouija is a master mechanic and can, I think, build just about anything. And he knew that we had to get this one unit called a hot seat. A hot seat is a giant, basically a, a modified giant pressure washer. And what he did is he modified it in a way that he could use the glacier against itself. He could melt glacier water and drill holes down, not with drilling equipment, but with hot water through the ice. But we had to move the, the hot sea a mile and a half up a slope on ice across a crevasse field. So Ouija turned it into a giant blocking sled and it turned us into sled dogs. And uh, that, that's me at the second from the top. So at 10 of us at a time, roughly, would get on this. He, he turned these ladders that we had used, we had brought to um, get across open crevasses. He turned them into the um, handholds and then into skis, essentially, for the hot seat. And we pushed and pushed to try to get it to the top. This was probably the hardest physical work I've ever done over a sustained period of time. Um, uh, we alternated, some of us, usually it was nine or ten of us were on the hot seat and the rest were on the guide ropes. And then at one point we came to this giant open crevasse. And we realized we had to get over or around it if we wanted to get um, to the point which we called BW1, this historical site where we thought something was there. And so we reached this point and then had to figure out uh, how to get around it without, and, and we're here on the edge, and I, you saw me, I'm on the right side there. I'm thinking, you know, I've got this really nice office back in Boston. Uh, it's summer in Boston, I could be on the beach, and here I am hanging over the right edge of the hot seat uh, on crevasse. And this is Ouija, uh, just making sure all the lines are taut as we're gonna try and uh, push it forward. So we'll let him uh, do his thing for a minute. Forward when you do it. Here we go. Okay, We found this one little area where we thought the ice would hold, but of course this thing is 800 pounds plus the, our weight. And we didn't know until we crossed it that we would, in fact, be able to get um, to get over. We finally did reach BW1. We finally reached the, this point where the radar showed there was something deep inside, and and Ouija started melting holes. Uh, and you can see there's a VCU hat. Jim Blow, any VCU folks? I thought you, know, you would appreciate that. Um, and uh, we were up there and we started drilling holes and Jim gets a call on the satellite phone from our helicopter pilot saying, you have to get back to your camp. You have to immediately leave that place. The Pitarac storm is coming faster than we expected. It's gonna hit the coast uh, within a matter of hours. You have to, we had just started drilling. We, it was, it was as devastating as anything um, you can imagine. He came back and people start gathering their things to go back the mile and a half or so back to camp. And Ouija announces, I'm not leaving. 
have the last helicopter, it was like the last helicopter from Saigon, um, have the last helicopter stop on the ice and pick me up. I'm going to keep drilling and melting until the last minute. And the Coast Guard had to order everyone off the ice, including everyone else from north-south polar for safety. But I had no, um, no affiliation with anyone. I was this kind of freelancer. And I knew, and Ouija and I had become uh, very good friends uh, throughout the mission and even beforehand and, and since. And so I, I knew he needed help. So I said, I'll stay. So everyone left. Ouija and I are up on top of this glacier. We start melting ice holes. And each one goes down 30 and 40 feet. And each time we do it, we then pull up the hose. This is a hose with a, um, a metal pipe at the end to, to, to keep the, hot, the superheated water going in the direction we want. And each time we would drop in a camera that Alberto Behar had built uh, to drop it deep into the ice to see what was down there. And we are running out of time. And we're drilling as fast as we can. We're melting as fast as we can. We are exhausted. And we see the first helicopter go and take the, our first group of teammates and then the second helicopter go. And we drill one more hole and we drop the camera deep into the ice, 38 feet down. And I hope you enjoy the book. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My agent wouldn't forgive me if I had. Uh, so uh, I will be happy to answer all questions but one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think uh, Graham. Yes, uh, we don't know if the butler did it or not, but uh, you wrote a, about folks who, who survived in a inclement uh, conditions in the tropics as well as this. Yes. And you mentioned brotherhood was one of, and teamwork was one of the characteristics uh, that you, you found. Were there other characteristics of the survivors that helped them survive that you think Yes. Uh, you identified? Uh, thank you for the question. It, it was both tr true in the tropics and in the Arctic. Uh, all the men who did come back talked afterward about being able to focus on their families back home. That the, when they started losing hope was, and when they, started, they stopped eating and they started letting the cold get to them was when they stopped focusing on the people they loved. So they focused on each other and they focused on each on, on the people they loved. And those were, the, I think, the two common threads in those who survived. And then there were the, you know, just uh, the technical things. But I think the spiritual uh, elements were really what kept them alive. I, I didn't quite understand the hot water. How, how was the hot water produced? Oh, I'm sorry. Where, uh, where's right the here. How was the hot water produced? Oh, OK. Uh, the hot sea, it, it heats water in a, um, basically in a, in a, in a miniature furnace. Uh, we would use um, uh, diesel fuel, and we would heat it up, and we would heat it in, um, in the pipes, and then direct it down into the, uh, the ice. It's, it's almost, almost a simple engine. 
uh, to heat the water in this in this furnace uh, bin on the on the back of the hot seat. Did they ever find the original C-53 crash site? Uh, That's a great question. That is that is the one mystery that remains, uh, and it's Lou and uh, several other people are determined to go back and find it. But uh, tragically, uh, it's not giving away too much of the book to tell you that uh, the, the, the very event that started these, this sequence of events uh, was the most mysterious. Their radio ultimately ran out, and they were never found. We have a pretty good idea where they are, but yeah. The two men who were originally rescued, how was it determined they were the two who got to go first? That's a great question. Uh, John, Pritchard, uh, uh, John Pritchard was only able to land about a mile away, so the most seriously injured guys couldn't get there. They wanted to send guys who were injured but still mobile enough, still ambulatory enough, that they could walk the mile or so to get there. And neither the captain nor the co-pilot, the co-captain, would go as the leaders. So these were enlisted men who were hurt, but not, uh, you know, not so hurt that they couldn't walk. The second day, when they came back, the plan was because on the second trip they brought um, sleds and they brought uh, different, you know, apparatus to get the guys. The most serious guys were going to go back the second time. I don't know if this is a stupid question, but does anybody live in, I mean, has Greenland got a government and got a, it's a taxes question. and everything? It's a great question. Or, or I'll, I say that because I asked the same question, so it's a great question when, uh, when I first started the research. Um, Greenland was uh, a Danish possession for many, many years, and uh, it is now uh, working towards sovereignty. Uh, about 70,000 people, we, you know, people we most used to call them, most of them uh, Eskimos, now that they're known as the Inuit people, uh, live clustered in settlements around the coast. There is a, a government, uh, the capital is Nook on the west coast, and about 30,000 people live in Nook. Uh, and in Kulasuk, where, where I was, uh, there are several hundred people and about twice as many sled dogs. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's so inhospitable. Um, I calculated that if the, if the um, population density of Greenland were transferred to Manhattan, uh, New York City would be populated by one and a half people. <laughs> so it is the emptiest place on Earth where there's uh, full-time inhabitants. Thank you for that great question. Yes. Yes, ma'am. You didn't talk uh, today or uh, about the Norden bomb site. I thought that was very interesting in the book, but I never learned what actually happened to it. Ah, the Norden bomb site I, I mention in the book. Uh, when the bomber was fully outfitted, it had a primitive to us now, but at the time, a highly classified piece of apparatus. It was a, a primitive computer, if you will, that uh, bombardiers said could drop a, uh, a bomb into a pickle jar from 10,000 feet. And it was an aiming device. And every bombardier in the US military 
had to, uh, in addition to his normal oath, had to sign a second oath, the oath of the bombardier, which said he, he would give his life rather than give up the, bonds, the bomb site. That's how dangerous they thought if it fell into enemy hands. Um, the bomb site of the, I, I don't want to give it away completely from what, uh, how it happens in the book, but uh, they were required before they, the last guys left uh, to dispose of the bomb site in a way that the, the Germans would never find it. Is that helpful? Okay, good. Well, thank you. If there are any other questions? Oh, great. I just finished Will Hilton's book, Vanished. Terrific and in, book. In it, he points out that the families of many of the missing airmen held out hopes for years that somehow their persons, uh, their persons survived. And even rumors that he came back and t took on a new life. Yes. Did you find something similar with very, the families here? Very much so. Um, the family of Ben Bottoms, the, uh, the Ducks radio man, the, uh, his wife for years um, wondered if he had wandered off and perhaps was living with, with Eskimos, with Inuit people. Uh, uh, Nancy Pritchard fantasized. She was, you know, she was a teenage girl that, that you know, nothing could kill her big brother. So certainly he had survived. And um, I, I think you know, some of the others as well. I think um, uh, I won't mention his name because I don't want to give it away. One of the guys who falls into the crevasse, his family also had that. It, I think it was fairly common uh, at the time because, you know, we live in an age where we can't imagine that we can't find this Malaysian jet. And the, the, the idea is, you know, part of the reason why we're so focused on it is it just, it's incomprehensible with our technologies that we can't find this jet and, and, and bring the, the, uh, the people home or for burial. At, as you know, at, at that time, anything could happen. Uh, and this was a, a time of stories and, and a time more of stories than technology. And so I think that was a very common thing. And, and, and if you haven't read Will, Hilton, Will Hilton's book, Vanished, it's also it's a terrific book. I thought so.